begin here. Uh, the title of my talk is Love Freely, or Freely Love, or Love and Freedom. And it's an interesting territory to explore, and I'll begin with a personal story. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, probably about 22, 23, I lived with some other people in a house on Venice Beach down in Southern California where I grew up. And um, we rented out the front room of this house on the beach to a woman who lived next door who was a rolfer, uh, rolfing being a kind of very deep tissue, connective tissue bodywork, structural integration. And this was back in the uh, mid-70s. And rolfing then in particular was kind of a no pain, no gain kind of orientation. So we'd be sitting in the living room and we'd be hearing people screaming, literally, <laughs> stop, Mira, stop, I can't bear it, stop. You know, it was pretty, now rolfing's evolved. I've, I've had millions of sessions and variations of other kinds of deep tissue body work like Heller work and so forth. So I'm, I'm a major fan of it. I'm not trying to scare anybody away. But at the time I was pretty frightened. So I was getting ready to go through the series. And the fifth session uh, has to do with opening up the abdomen, the abdominal area. And at that point, I'd had enough background in the human potential movement and emotional release work that I thought, oh my God, all my stuff, my sadness, my pain, my anger, my fear, my misery, ugh, it's all going to get released, right? This deep tissue work, great. What a good idea, okay? So then, so that was my orientation going into the session kind of freaking out. Well, she starts to work on me, and if, if you've ever had this kind of work, it's deep, it's, it's intense, you know, it approaches pain sometimes, sometimes it goes over that line. So she's working on me deeply. And then Mira, who's a very down-to-earth, kind of basic, not a airy-fairy kind of person, starts, she moves to the end of the table, and she's just kind of standing there. And at the same time, I start feeling something really interesting is happening. So she starts standing there, kind of basking at the foot of the table. And I felt flowing through me, releasing tremendous amounts of not pain, not sadness, not grief, not shame or worthlessness, but vast amounts of love flowing freely out of me. And... Um, Mira literally felt, for her, that it was a very unusual experience of as if there was a light, a warmth, an energy, just kind of coming off me um, about that. And I realized in part that what had happened is that over the years, in my war with my mother, the one weapon I had was to withhold love. And so what was suppressed in me, primarily, was not so much anger, shame, or sadness, although I definitely had some of that, but the big bulk of it was withheld love. And Mira opened the dam, as it were, and there was a dam burst of love that came flowing freely out of me. And since then, I've reflected many times on how, in many ways, one of the greatest forms of suffering is thwarted contribution, thwarted flow of love. And also, I've reflected about the teachings from many sources that love is our nature. Love is very woven into our nature. And it's not a matter of muscularly cranking up love, you know, turning the crank to battery power, right, or charge the battery of love, but more unleashing it, unpacking it, disentangling, you know, the restraints upon it. So that's, what, that's the territory I'd like to explore with you tonight.
So if you think about it, um, love and spiritual practice are very entwined um, in many traditions, certainly including Buddhism. Uh, a friend of mine was a monk in Southeast Asia for uh, many, many years, and when he came back, among other questions, I asked him if he'd met anybody who was enlightened. And it's both kind of a silly, naive question, but it's also like, yeah, I'm curious. And so he said, well, first off, in, in that environment, this, these Buddhist monastic practice in Southeast Asia, uh, it's not like you have a white light moment and get it, your new infomercial and teleseminar channel, you know? You have to actually be observed for many years. I said, okay, were there still people who are either fully cooked or very far along? He said, yeah, there were. I said, okay, what were they like? He said, well, first, they had a lot of energy. They were participating. They were engaged. They were involved. And second, they were always the same. I said, what do you mean they were always the same? He said, well, they, you know, sometimes they were quiet. Sometimes they were talkative. Sometimes they were serious. Other times they would joke around. But fundamentally, they were always the same. If you were nice to them, they really loved you. If you were mean to them, they really loved you. <laughs> Their love for you was unconditional. It wasn't based on external conditions. They might need to draw lines in the sand. They might need to, you know, have you leave the monastery because you're growing marijuana in the jungles above the temple. You're not supposed to do that, but uh, they're not going to put you out of their heart. It's a very fundamental distinction, you know. Put put someone out of, um, you know, the company or the bed, but we don't need to put them out of our heart. Or as the Buddha said a long time ago. With goodwill for the entire cosmos, cultivate a limitless heart, above, below, and all around, unobstructed, without hostility or hate. That's such a lovely aspiration, isn't it? Cultivate, there's that element of sincerity, aspiration, resolve, practice. Cultivate a limitless heart, a heart that doesn't bump into limits, is fundamentally free, right? Thus the theme tonight, love and freedom, freedom and love. Above, below, and all around, unobstructed, free, again that word, of hostility and hate. Hostility and hate may arise in the mind, but in the language of the Buddha, this fantastic phrase that's very practical and down to earth, it need not invade the mind and remain. It may arise, but it need not invade the mind and remain. As long as it doesn't invade the mind and remain, there is that fundamental freedom. It's interesting that in recent scholarship about the teachings of the Buddha, it's increasingly clear that he very matter-of-factly taught that love was a wholly sufficient path to complete enlightenment if it were developed and perfected. It's really quite a remarkable and radical statement. The notion of love as a fully sufficient path to practice when fully developed. And there's so much about that that you can see for yourself, which is as we open into love, as we give ourselves over to love, and I'll talk more about that and some of the practicalities of that, uh, as we do that, uh, what happens increasingly is that uh, we disentangle ourselves from selfing, me, myself, and I, taking things personally, my view, my position, my precious, you know? We disentangle from that, and we also disentangle from the craving. 
wrapped around that as we give ourselves over into love, as we release, you know, the clenched fist of the ordinary ego self, all right? And as we do that as well, we help foster positive conditions in which other people start dealing with us and the world starts responding to us in ways that uh, help make it easier and easier to sustain that releasing of selfing and defendedness and drivenness and, and grasping and craving of various kinds. Love is a very central aspect of practice in all its forms, which include compassion, the wish that beings not suffer, kindness, the wish that beings be happy, uh, joy at their good fortune, uh, ordinary liking, inclusion, appreciating others, seeing the good in others, seeing what's likable in others, and certainly also this territory of love includes cherishing, romantic love, erotic love, familial love, um, and love ultimately for all things. So, if we're to engage love, we need to be a little intentional about it. Because other reactions arise, as you may have noticed. Or, as Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, said, probably puffing on a cigarette, hell is other people. How do we do it? Well, we need to establish wise intention, what the Buddha called. It's very interesting that in the Noble Eightfold Path in Buddhism, um, one of the eight elements, uh, listed very early, right after, in the traditional sequence, right after wise view or right view, is right intention or wise intention, which consists of three things, two of which are very directly relevant here and one indirectly relevant. Uh, The three intentions that constitute wise intention are the intention for releasing grasping, sometimes called renunciation, Uh, also the intention to uh, not harm beings, and the intention to release ill will, which means implicitly, of course, cultivating goodwill for other beings. There's a place for intentionality when it comes to love. And I personally got a lesson about that um, uh, very uh, early in a very important long-term relationship. So to uh, spare the guilty parties involved, um, I'll uh, disguise some of the details here. But basically, I was in a situation where I was in a very, very important, deep relationship with someone. um, And that other person, trust me, started doing some really wild stuff. What do you do then? And, you know, I I knew long-term I wouldn't be prepared to stay in in this relationship with this wild stuff happening. But short-term, I thought, what the heck? I'll just love them, and we'll see what happens. So I I literally had felt like loving at will, you know, and it reminded me of a saying of a teacher at the time. He said, show me the muscle of your heart. You know, can you love at will? Can you love in the face of provocation? By I don't mean at all being a doormat, tolerating abuse, um, not having healthy boundaries. I'll get to that in a bit. But as long as your basics are okay, you know, the harms are not invading you and remaining. I, re- I explored for myself what it was like to love at will, and it was a phenomenal teaching. 
I started to appreciate that there could be a deliberateness about love, that it wasn't just as it's described in the romantic stories, just kind of sweeps you along and takes you away and it, it's either there or it's not there. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was capable of being fueled, of being encouraged, you know, a kind of um, watering of the fruit tree, if you will, so that it gradually bore more and more fruit. And as I did that, interestingly, I wasn't drained by doing this. I was actually fed by it. It pulled me into a good place, which helped me deal with what was happening in a more skillful, calmer, and not so wounded sort of way. Um, And also, it felt doubly loving. Sometimes we think that it's phony or artificial to love deliberately. I'm talking here about going to the upper end of the authentic range of what's possible. You know, there's a range here in any moment with another person, what's authentically possible. You know, they bonk you on the head, that range is kind of down here, maybe. They treat you really nicely, maybe that range is up here. But within that range, how do we respond to that person? And for me, loving at will is doubly loving because first, there's love in one form or another flowing through. And second, there's the love that's implicit in the willful intention to love. It's perfectly legitimate and and appropriate to love at will. This takes us to the notion of unilateral virtue, which is my language or phrase for something that's very central in Buddhism, which is this idea that other people do what they do, and we're each responsible for our own practice, our own welfare, our own unfolding, our own karmas, essentially the results of our actions or particularly our intentional actions, certainly in this life and who knows, perhaps in other ones. So if we are to participate with others in love at will, it means we're living by our own code with them. Whatever they do, we are, we're rested in how we're going to be with them. You know, we're not um, knocked off our code, our center. You know, we, we choose to practice wise speech, right speech, no matter what they do. You know, wise speech, right speech, according to the Buddha, involving six conditions, five mandatory, one preferable but optional. The six conditions are, you know, speech, language in one form or another, including emails. (laughs) I know from experience here, in terms of my sending, uh, and occasionally what comes my way, speech or communication that is well-intended, true, useful, uh, timely, not harsh, that's a really important one, and ideally wanted, but not necessarily. Okay? That's our code. We act that way no matter what. And um, it's benevolent and moral to act that way. The Buddha was all for that. But his primary focus or framing on virtue in various forms is pragmatic. Virtue is good for practice. It makes you feel good to practice unilaterally. It also puts you at cause rather than at effect. You become a cue ball rather than an eight ball in your relationships. It simplifies your life. You know what to do. Just keep doing your practice. Um, It puts you on the moral high ground. It also tends to encourage good treatment from other people. And it's a very useful way to really work with the mind to function within the frame of some stable invariance. No matter what's happening out there, you're still centered 
in your own practice. As the Buddha says as well, of all the fragrances, sandalwood, tagara, blue lotus, and jasmine, the fragrance of virtue is the sweetest. Isn't that cool? Don't you also love these traditional words? You know. Anyway, of all the fragrances, sandalwood, tagara, blue lotus, and jasmine, the fragrance of virtue is the sweetest. So, how do we do this? How do we do this loving it well? In its various forms, right? Which can be subtle or mild, or could be very engaged and intense. How do we actually do that? Well, there are many things that support that this practice, or many factors. I'll just name a few that really pop out for me and link to some extent to my own understanding of um, evolutionary neuropsychology. So one is to keep looking for and regenerating a sense of the being behind the eyes. You know, the be hyphen ink behind the eyes. You know, we know ourselves, our own being behind these eyes, right? Don't we each know that? That vulnerable experiencing process that has some stability to it. Um, the longings deep in the heart, the ways we're affected by things, that internal felt sense of burdens carried, you know, dealing with life, facing inevitably old age, disease, and death. Uh, as the Buddha put it, the, the certain knowledge that one day we'll be separated one way or another from all that we love or over a series of days. So, you know, that's how it is in here. We know that, don't we? That keenly. Um, well, that being process, that kind of standing wave of process, is present as well in others. And tuning in to that, that, that being over there, that vulnerability, that longing, that, you know, curiosity, that aliveness in the mind over there, is naturally powerful to draw that love out of us, that compassion, that empathy, that um, decency, that fair play, that kindness, even that deep, deep love uh, for someone you don't even know well, seeing the being behind the eyes. And if there's a difficulty in a relationship, as soon as we can kind of refine our own center, you know, within seconds or minutes or years, at some point, it really helps in a difficult situation or relationship or interaction uh, to, keep, to really tune into that being behind the eyes. And to slow down long enough to do that, it usually takes a few seconds. Also, as animals, we're very, very tuned in to the little muscles, the little region around the eyes, the micro-expressions there around the mouth. Just really drinking those in is a very powerful path uh, for tuning into that being behind the eyes. Also, it helps to look freshly and newly to not habituate to other people and kind of tune them out and go on autopilot. You know how to use a romantic relationship in the early days? Everything about them is fascinating, including the stuff that's repelling years later. But then it's like, wow, amazing. All those hairs in your nostrils. Wow. You know? Well, anyway, it really helps with other people. Ordinary situations, friends, people at work, family, uh, lovers, children, parents, what have you, 
to keep regenerating that sense of seeing that other newly. So we don't tend to, you know, tune them out too quickly. Um, you know, what is the new basis or regenerating a fresh feeling of caring for them? Doesn't mean again we're waiving our rights. Doesn't mean we're 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 not recognizing that uh, what you know our what we think is the truth of the situation. But to the extent appropriate, we can find again and again our caring for them. Uh, recently, in Buddha Dharma magazine, which I really like, uh, I think it's the winter 2013 issue. In the very back, there's this beautiful story from a woman named Maureen Connor, who's talking about putting on a retreat and uh, some of the issues she had around it. And at one point, she uh, talks about uh, a a kind of statement she makes to herself uh, every day as a, I think of it as an invocation or a recentering in a fundamental intention she has. And um, I was so struck by what she said that I have written it down and um, I'm posting it on the wall next to my office at home and that kind of thing and I want to share it with you. She says, as the earth gives us food and air and all the things we need, I give my heart to caring for all others until all attain awakening. For the good of all sentient beings, may loving kindness be born in me. I read that again, and I'm struck also by the number of times the word all appears. As the earth gives us food and air and all the things we need, I give my heart to caring for all others until all attain awakening. For the good of all sentient beings, may loving kindness be born in me. Isn't that beautiful? I've, I've been taking, I memorized it, and I've been taken to... Um, muttering it in my mind, you know, uh, from time to time, both in good times and bad times. So, with that in mind, as some of the ways to encourage or to unleash that that love um, that's there inside us, taking its many forms, subtle and mild, or perhaps disengaged, or intense, powerful, and very engaged, I want to talk about um, the sticky stuff in relationships. So, as an entry into that, uh, I want to make the point that no matter what they do, they can't stop you from loving them in some sense of that word. Minimally, compassion. Now, honestly, in my own practice, what I sometimes have to do is it's not authentic for me with them as an adult in the moment. So I'll try to get a sense in them as a little kid. Sometimes I have to get a sense in them as a very young little kid. But at some point, I can locate that little kid in them that I wish well. And I can also locate the sense that, you know, if you weren't suffering so much, you just wouldn't be doing all that stuff. You know, whatever. I find my way to it, right? No one can, can stop us from that. And I'm thinking of the story that's told about Nelson Mandela, uh, no longer alive, as you know, uh, the great um, freedom fighter and teacher and deep practitioner in South Africa. And 
the story goes that Nelson Mandela, as you may know, was in prison for about 29 years, much of it at hard labor. Uh, there's a neat movie, more or less about a big piece of that called Invictus. Uh, it involves rugby, which is kind of a neat sport. But anyway, uh, Nelson Mandela. And it shows some of the prison that he was in, which is just awful. And so N Nelson Mandela writes in his own autobiography that probably his darkest moments were when he felt that he was going to be stuck there for the rest of his life with no one that he could love. He would be, he would be separated from those he loved. And so what he determined to do was he accepted the reality that he couldn't control the fact that the prison guards and the prison system and the apartheid regime was blocking him from those he had loved. So he determined to love his guards, to love new people as well as the prisoners. So he began loving his guards. And apparently he was so loving toward his guards that they couldn't mistreat him like they were supposed to. So they got rid of those guards and brought him some new guards. He kept loving them and uh, because that was his own freedom. He found his freedom in being able to love them, no matter what. Um, and eventually, as you know, uh, he was released, um, apartheid ended, and at his inauguration, uh, as the first, uh, if it's okay to use the word, first black president of South Africa, um, one of his former guards was sitting in the front row as very involved in his security detail. That's Nelson Mandela. I think about another story, a true story. A Tibetan monk uh, finally got out of um, Tibet, released from the prisons run there by the Chinese government, obviously distinct from the Chinese people. And uh, this particular monk was telling the Dalai Lama about what had happened to him. Just dreadful. Torture, deprivation, awful things. And at one point, the Dalai Lama burst out, uh, weren't you afraid for your life? And the monk paused and said, well, the only time I was really afraid for my life was when I felt like I was losing my loving kindness for my jailers. That's how he defined his life, his true life, his capacity to love freely in the face of awful treatment. So um, no one can stop us from doing that on a much more kind of mundane level, personally. Uh, again, protecting the innocent. Um, in my extended family, uh, for quite a long time, there was someone that uh, it was a very difficult relationship. And I tried all kinds of things. So I'm a therapist, and I really came up through the human potential movement, the wild and woolly scene of that. And also I've been doing Buddhist practice for a long time and a lot of other stuff. And so I, I had a lot of things I could try, and none of them worked, okay? in part because this person was dedicated to preventing repairing, and you can't repair with someone who is intending to thwart your efforts at repairing as a way to punish you. I don't know if you've ever been there. Okay, what can you do then? And you start realizing as well that your attempts at repair are making things worse because they're experienced on the other side as a control move of some kind, an exercise of power or influence. So... What I realized on retreat here, up the road uh, one time, was that after being really miserable for quite some time, that 
this person could not stop me from loving this person, that I was actually free to rest in love. And the love um, wouldn't be skillful if it was gushy or uh, very overt, but I could take refuge in and know that what I could do was to love that other person. And uh, that was something I found myself doing, and it felt good for me to do. And I think, not coincidentally, that shift for me was um, the beginning of one of s- several shifts, was involved in uh, several, one of several shifts that really have led to a phenomenal um, healing and turn-making in that relationship. Now, of course, what they do with our love is on them, not on us, right? Our job is to love, to practice that, that virtue whose fragrance is sweetest. We can't make them receive the love. We can't make them appreciate it. My mom, no longer alive, uh, was a very powerful and loving person. She could not make me receive her love as you know a seven-year-old, let alone a teenager or an adult. So what do we do about that? And that takes me to an experience I had with a friend of mine uh, who is a Zen, who's training to become a Zen priest. This was uh, probably 25, maybe 30 years ago. And he was preparing his very first Dharma talk, his official kind of coming out talk. And uh, he was involved with San Francisco Zen Center, which at the time apparently was in a pretty rundown area of San Francisco, maybe still is, I don't know. And many homeless people would come in just to kind of hang out during the Dharma talks because it was warm in there and nobody was attacking them, et cetera, et cetera. So knowing that, um, I asked my friend um, David uh, how he felt about offering something that was so precious to him, that he was so invested in, that was so dear to him, and he was crafting so skillfully, how he felt, honestly, about offering it to people uh, who had no interest in it whatsoever, might even think that it was stupid. And he looked at me like I totally didn't get it. And you know why he looked at me like I totally didn't get it? Because I totally didn't get it. Um, and he made this funny little gesture. He took his hands like this, like he was holding something in his hands. I was sitting across from him. I remember where we were, two, two beds facing each other in a, at a party in a back room, talking with each other. And he took his hands like this, and he just made a gesture at my feet, like this. And he said, my job is to make the best offering I can, to be skillful about it, to be sincere in my practice with it, make the best offering I can. And he went like this. And after that, it's up to them. That's, my work is to make the offering. Their work is what happens after that. What a great lesson around making the offering, doing the best we can, recognizing the fact that what happens over there is the result of 10,000 causes upstream that interact interdependently to produce this moment in the vast tapestry of reality. We have very little influence over most of that. Sometimes we have no influence whatsoever. And yet we have much influence over our own offering. So we make the offering that we can. I think of uh, Leonard Cohen's, uh, he's a longtime Zen practitioner, Leonard Cohen's lyric, um, 
ring the, uh, he says, uh, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. Forget your perfect offering. Ring the bells that still can ring. It's also true that we can wish well. We can have compassion. We can care about situations we can do nothing about. We're utterly helpless in regard to. I've uh, recently been to Haiti. Uh, I was there a year ago as well. My first real experience with a, call it a third world country, really a fourth world country, really broken down. There's so much I can't do to help. Um, And yet I do care in my heart about what happens to the people there. And, you know, I make the offerings that I can to help a particular school and a particular program for uh, people there. So even if we can't um, feed every child on the planet, we can't, um, you know, deal with a million or so children every year in America who go homeless, literally. Or we can't do anything about here in America, let's say, the one in five children who live below the poverty line, one in four in California, um, we can still care. We can still wish them well. We can still be moved. We can still, as a teacher of mine once put it a while ago, keep the wound of the heart green. It doesn't make our love any less sincere. I think it's a deeply important kind of practice to... um, Care about the things that you're helpless to do anything about. So if we're to sustain this kind of practice in a lawful kind of way, if we were to to give, to express, we also need to feed ourselves or we're going to start running on empty. We need to water the fruit tree for it to continue to give fruit. And... I think of the Buddha's uh, teaching here when he says, if one going down into a river, swollen and swiftly flowing, is carried away by the current, how can one help others across? We can't. Or the familiar cliche, as they say in the airlines, put your own oxygen mask on first. There's an old proverb, uh, Robert Frost turned it into a beautiful poem, fences make for good neighbors. There's a long-standing principle in psychology that there needs to be a balance of intimacy and autonomy. And the two support each other. On the one side, um, uh, having intimacy with others and receiving their own goodness coming this way and feeling connected and Uh, feeling part of the tribe of some kind or other. That resources us so we can be autonomous and strong and determined and willful. Flip the other way, knowing that we can be autonomous ourselves, knowing that we are allowed to establish unilaterally our own view of the truth of things, and we are allowed to unilaterally take care of our own fundamental needs, and to know that we can maintain a sense of here while present with what's happening there, we can truly open up to the most powerful winds blowing toward us from other people. Imagining, as I often do ourselves, perhaps as a deeply rooted tree 
that is in relationship with the storm. And the, the wind is whistling through the leaves and a few twigs are blown off, if, et cetera. But as, after the storm passes, because everything's impermanent, the tree still is standing there. So how do we take care of ourselves in this kind of way? Well, there are many good practices. One of them, very fundamental, is mindfulness of the body. Because when we have a very rooted, ongoing felt sense of attunement to ourselves, if we open to the signals coming up into the brain from within the body, most of the inputs into the brain originate from within the body, most of those signals, if not all of them, are usually saying, much like a night watchman, all is well. There is enough air to breathe in this moment. There is enough, um, the heart is beating, the organs are working fine, we're not in immediate danger of dying, we're not in agonizing, excruciating pain, at least in this moment. So by tuning in to those signals when they're true, and sometimes they may not be true, but when they are true, that can help us stay really present with other people, even if they're being troubling. And out of sustaining that stability, kind of like having a deep keel in the water if we are a sailboat, so that as the worldly winds blow, we don't get knocked over, or if we get banged hard, we recover quickly. As we do that, we're much more able to stay in relationship with other people, much more able to receive them while reserving our rights, feeling fundamentally safe and protected over here, and then having a base from which, when it's appropriate, we can speak or act or otherwise engage the other person. It's interesting the Buddha has um, a teaching that I think about a lot lately. Um, and it has to do with resourcing ourselves, taking in the good, cultivating wholesome, happy qualities inside ourselves, like loving kindness for others, as well as our own happiness, our own gratitude, our own sense of fulfillment in life, our own feeling that we're a good person too, our own sense of worth, our own confidence, filling ourselves up with these good things actually makes us more able to open into relationship with others. You know, the quote from the Buddha is, drop by drop is the water pot filled. Or it actually begins this way. Think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. The wise one, fills oneself with good. So by taking care of our own needs, doing what we can to get enough sleep, enough food, enough um, respite, taking care of our needs in other ways um, as well, fills us up so that we have more to offer to others. I think it's also important to appreciate that uh, as uh, Stephen Gaskin, who was a teacher in San Francisco in the early 70s, 60s. He wrote a really great book called Monday Night Class. He and his wife, Ina Mae Gaskin, wrote Spiritual Midwifery. Many of you may know about that book. Anyway, he says karma is hitting golf balls in a shower. That's what karma is. You know, in other words, people strike the ball. I imagine actually more like a locker room shower, so there's kind of room to swing the club. You hit that ball, it comes back. Certainly in this life. Who knows about other ones? And, um, well, flip it around. It's also true that other people, they're hitting that golf ball, creating karma for themselves. 
And one thing I think that sometimes happens is we get caught up in case-making about other people. You know, as they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for others to die. Right? Or as the Buddha put it, getting angry at others uh, is like throwing hot coals with bare hands. Both people get burned. There's a place for feeling anger. It flows through. There's certainly a place for being fierce, firm, even fiery. But we all have some sense of where that line is, where we cross that line and we go out of bounds. And then we hurt ourselves and other people as well. And so in that, there's a tendency, I think, and I know it well myself, to get very caught up in the case we're making, our own attachment to view. You know that where you find yourself staying awake at night, you know, uh, composing the email you're going to send or the thing you're going to say or why they're really wrong? You know, you get caught up in it. It takes a life on of its own, right? Uh, or, you know, I've got to make sure they get punished or something like that. And, I, you know, I think there's a real place for being skillfully assertive. And it's not the time tonight to really explore that. Um, you know, I've written a lot about that and taught a lot about it as well, and other people too, how to be skillfully assertive with other people. It's fairly straightforward to be strong with others. It's also fairly straightforward to be loving with others. To be both strong and loving, the intersection of those two circles, that takes a fair amount of skillfulness and clarity of mind, and is also, of course, really cool to develop that territory. So there's a lot that can be done about that, but I want to speak here as I move, move toward an end tonight, um, about the, the, the fact that we don't need to be the justice system necessarily for other people. We don't need to get caught up in punishing them. And there's a story from the Jataka tales, uh, which are tales that arose um, within a few centuries, mainly of the Buddha's death, uh, that are in the form of teaching stories that have to do with the time before the Buddha's full awakening, when he and many others uh, were living as animals that were very intelligent and could speak. So it's in that context that I'll tell you this story. Once upon a time, a hunter got lost in a vast forest and fell down into a deep pit and could not get out. The hunter suffered greatly, thirsty, uh, lonely for his family, hungry, frightened, and he called and called and called, and no one came to help him. Finally, though, on the other side of the forest, the Buddha, who was incarnated at that time as a gorilla, the gorilla Buddha, discerned the calls of this man and, moved by great compassion, raced over, crossed great territory to come to the man's aid. So the Buddha gorilla, the gorilla, comes to the pit and sees the man who just sees a gorilla. And the man says, Gorilla, get me out of here. And the gorilla says, Well, man, I'll help you. Let me come down and see what is needed here. So the gorilla climbs down into the pit and uh, discovers that it's very precarious, it's very deep, and he's going to have to practice to be prepared to haul the man out. So he says to the man, Man, I'm going to roll down a series of boulders into this pit. Don't worry, they won't land on you. I'll move them to the side. And then I'm going to climb down into the pit and practice hauling the boulders out, heavier and heavier boulders. And then when I feel like I know how to do this, I'll get you out of here safely. The man says, okay, do it. So the Buddha gorilla, the gorilla rolls boulders into the pit, 
hauls him out, you know, climbing the pit, vines, rocks, crazy stuff, gets the boulders out. Finally says to the man, I'm ready to get you out. So the man says, it's about time. So the Buddha gorilla, the gorilla climbs down into the pit, grabs the man, holds him carefully, and then one arm, you know, scratches, claws, fights his way up over the pit to the top of the pit with the barely his last bit of strength, he pushes the man out of the pit, and then, after catching his breath for a moment, claws his own way out of the pit. The man looks at the gorilla and says, okay, can you guide me out of the forest now? The gorilla's, okay, okay. Says the man, okay, man, I'll guide you out of the forest. But first, I must sleep. I need to rest. I need to gather myself. Then I can guide you out of the forest safely. So the man says, okay, take your nap. Then, as now, most humans look down on animals. So the gorilla falls asleep. The man starts thinking. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. You know, I could pick up one of these big stones, drop it on that gorilla's head, kill him, drink his blood, eat him, give myself strength, and then I could get out of this forest on my own. Then I won't owe him anything. Why don't I do that? So the man picks up one of these huge stones, lifts it high over the gorilla's head, and smashes it down on his head. The gorilla is not killed by the blow, merely stunned. Can you imagine, there you are, exhausted, and someone drops a big stone on your head, and you're sleeping, come on, wake up. So the gorilla sits up, blood streaming down his face from the wounds to his head. He looks at the man, he sees the man stepping back, and he can see fairly quickly in the man's face, his fear, his shame, his alarm, um, you can just see quickly what's happened. Then tears start streaming down the face of the Buddha gorilla. And he looks at the man and shakes his head in great sorrow and compassion. He says, poor man, now you'll never be happy. The end. That's how the story ends. Right there. You know, because the gorilla, he's sad for the man because he recognizes that for man, the karma of everything, let alone the karma of attacking a, a Buddha, is such that it would be very, very, very difficult for a long, 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 long time for that man to ever be truly happy. In the moment, the, the gorilla didn't feel the need to retaliate. He didn't feel the need to be the justice system, because justice is already being served in a lot of ways. You know, poor man, now you'll never be happy. Like, wow. I mean, what a standard for practice, and yet also a kind of freedom. You know, it's not my job to punish you. It doesn't say in the story whether the Buddha gorilla guided the man out of the forest. The kind of evil... Part of me 
sort of wanted the Buddha gorilla to guide the man out of the forest and guilt trip him the whole way. But <laughs> try to not let that thought invade my mind and remain too much. This is such a moving and inspiring story to, to think about operating with others, including those who have wronged us, you know, with that in mind. Again, speaking truth to power is needed, uh, having a kind of freedom about that, um, but not getting entangled. So much of the Buddha Dharma is written in the language of entanglement and disentangling. Think about how we get entangled with other people. We get all knotted up with them. And the alternative, as the Buddha gorilla did in the story, is to love freely. And of course, wrapping up here, I haven't named yet one of the most important beings to love freely. You probably know who that is. It's oneself. It's possible as well to open to a kind of freedom around warm-heartedness and kindness and compassion and, and good cheer and encouragement and forgiveness directed at the one being among all others who wears one's own name tag. That also is a fundamental kind of freely loving, loving freely. And you might explore in the days to come what it's like to allow, I think of it as kind of the great bird of love, to unfurl her wings inside your own heart for yourself as well as, you know, for other people as well. So how about we just sit with this quietly for a couple of minutes, letting it sink in. I'll ring the gong three times, and that'll be our formal end this evening. And I'll stick around for those who might like to talk about this a little more.
Thank you for your kindness and your attention. Be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.